0: You know, one of the most uh, haunting songs of the 20th century was a song called Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin for the benefit of our millennial and Gen Z crowd here today. It was a song about a high-achieving, career-oriented dad who has a son who wants to spend time with him and looks up to him. Like most children, they long For their father's attention. Want to imitate them. As the song develops. The time for being together. Is always elusively. In the future. When you coming home. With the reply. Son I don't know when. Followed by. We'll get together then. I'm sure we'll have a good time. Then. As you can guess. In the song. Time moves on. And the relationship never really gets the attention that it deserves. And in a stroke of irony, when the man is old, he wants to be with his son, but his son has grown up to be just like him. And he doesn't have time. I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I can find the time. It ends with the same relational moments in life pushed off to the future. When you come in home, son? I don't know when. But we'll get together then. You see, this song presses on us with the question of what, uh, what our real pursuits in life are. What our ongoing pursuit of achievement is really worth in the end. This is a song about the pursuit of a certain type of achievement in neglect of some other more basic and important things. And it's left many people asking the question themselves, what is it really worth to pursue all sorts of achievements and never have the kind of relationships that God has intended for us to have? Well, the author of Ecclesiastes has told us that there's some value in our toil and achievement. If you've been following with us for the past several weeks or you've been a part of this study, one of the things we've realized is that we've been told that under the sun, there is very little that is not just going to slip through our fingertips. That everything that we see going on under the sun is vanity Meaning, and, and it's the Hebrew word hevel, which is like, it's got a little substance, but when you try to grab onto it, it just fades, it, it just slips through the fingers. But we've seen a few times that there are some things that are better than others, and one of those was to find some joy in our toil. To find some pleasure in our work. And it's got a little bit maybe more substance than other things. And and is a part of God's original good creation. Work, toil, giving ourselves to certain achievement. Is a part of the pre-fall world that God gave us. To work the ground. to, To care for it. To be caretakers. To create. To produce things. This is a good. We were created to do it. And in some way the fall can't entirely rob it. And so we're told several times, that there's nothing particularly better that we can find other than the sun, other than to find some joy joy in the toil and work of our hands. And that's been kind of one of our only refuges in the book. But we find out in today's passage that that's not everything, because what happens is here in this passage, the teacher uh, is, is kind of pressing on just how valuable is toil and achievement. Like how much weight can it hold in our lives? And so he's going to press more deeply to make sure that we don't make the unwise move of pouring our life into achievement through work and other sorts of effort and toil. Now I want to back up and just say, today we're going to be talking about work and toil and achievement, kind of this whole category. And we're not just talking about our job and our vocation, but we're talking about all of our pursuits, goals, what we give our hands to, what we're trying to make out of this life, part of which sometimes is our work. But it's the many other goals and achievements and desires we have set our sights on. And and all of that, he's examining that deeply. And I think there, there probably isn't a more important passage in the book of Ecclesiastes for us to examine as the place that we set our hope than to look at our toil. I mean, there's few things that mark northern Virginia and greater D.C. than toil like the drive to achieve. This is a place of achievement and work and effort and promotion and advancement. And we love it. And if we're not careful, we're just just imbibing the culture. Even as Christians who are called to live a sort of counter-cultural life, we will just imbibe that culture. We'll take it in and we'll live it out and we'll pursue all the same things without ever asking, what is it worth? What are we really doing? And so I think there's a real intent that's meant to transform us in this passage. The author is really provoking us to examine our pursuit of achievement in favor of contentment and healthy relationships. That's what you're going to see here, that that there's something better than the pursuit of achievement. And the main idea this morning, I would just sum it up this way of this passage, that the pursuit of achievement must be moderated by contentment and healthy relationships, that, that pursuing achievement, effort, toil, ambition, that they must come under the control of having the right aim, of serving something. And particularly, he says, of helping us really examine what it takes to be content in life and to nurture the most important relationships we have. So, so work and toil or effort is only good to the degree that it helps us gain contentment and build better relationships. Otherwise, it's likely to run out of control and destroy things in our life. And so that's the main idea. The pursuit of achievement must be moderated or brought under control by contentment as the goal and healthy relationships as its soil. So let's think about that that now in terms of the passage. If you were to look at the passage, you'd see it kind of can be broken down into four sections. There's four kind of things, there's an initial statement. Then there's a little set of proverbs uh, in the in the second couple verses, verse five and, and uh, six, and then it, it moves on to reinforce this with that very famous set of lines about uh, two are better than one and a threefold chord and just this idea about the importance of relationships. And then it ends with this parable at the end. And I think through the way the passage is structured in those four sections, I think we can see that it's really giving us four reasons to examine our toil and our pursuit of achievement in life under the sun. That we ought to make a good examination of it. Don't just assume that everything we're doing to be hard workers and put in effort and do things is just great. But begin to examine it. Ask the right questions. What are we doing? And that's what this passage helps us to do. And so here are four reasons to examine our toil as we look at each one of those sections. The first one that you're going to see is that the pursuit of achievement is often driven by envy. He says, while we're taking an examination of our toil, one of the first things that we're going to have to admit and recognize is that the pursuit of achievement is often driven by envy. As the author begins digging deeper on just how solid of a foundation toil can be for building a a meaningful life, he begins to notice something about what drives people to achieve. I want you to think about your own life and and the things that have been driving you, the achievements you've longed for, desired, and pursued, some of which you may have already gotten to, and others that remain yet future. If we look closely at this particular part of the text, here in life under the sun... As a result of our fallen condition, the pursuit of achievement, he said, is dominated by envy. He says it plainly here in the text. Well, what I would argue is a slight amount of hyperbole. I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. That envy and the pursuit of having things like we see others around us have, he says, is hevel. It is vanity. It's chasing after something that we're never going to be able to get our hands on. So he looks and says, over there is our neighbor. They have things. We want them. And we're pursuing them with our effort and toil. Most of the time, we're being driven by what we see that other people have. And and now that we see it, we've got to have it. We've got to have it. And so it drives our work, our innovation, our effort. We get better at our jobs so we can advance. But really, behind that, it, we're being driven by this pursuit of getting the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and, and, and just an endless pursuit of doing that, which is called envy, which is a motivation of envy. It's an elusive substance that just when we have it, It turns out to be empty. I want to ask you a question. Can you think of a time in your life where you really wanted to achieve something, reach a particular goal, and then when you got it, it just wasn't that satisfying? Like Maybe it was just the chase. Because when you finally had it in your hands, you wanted the next thing. The next place. The next recognition. The next item. This is, this is the human heart, isn't it? Maybe you have an objection. Immediately some of you say, time out, wait. The things I'm working to achieve are driven by my virtuous desire to serve humanity in a good cause. I'm just trying to work hard and help, help people out. And uh, that's wonderful. I believe you, sort of. Right? I mean, we're so quick to just exonerate our motivations, aren't we? I mean, like, you know, I, I look and, and think, oh, yeah, that's, that's it. But if we're going to take the author serious, it's possible you have matured beyond where most people begin. But most people, most of us set out in life with a desire to have some things we don't and a drive to get those things. That's not entirely wrong but there's a whole list of things we started off wanting and they're not just material but we're driven by this desire to get the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and so our ingenuity and our skill and all of that it's not just that we're trying to become the best person we can be it's that somehow that is the ticket to getting that next thing we want and we never stop and ask is that next thing worth what I'm going through and so envy can drive the motivation for our achievement. And he says, most of, all, most of the situations in life, that's where we begin. That's the base motive. That's the drive. We want more. We have a hunger. Our, our, our hearts are just desire factories. And so maybe, maybe you're here and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I really am not that materialistic, so I'm off the hook. Well, I want, I want to point out that envy isn't just about material things. You see, once we wake up, you know, as young adults or late teenagers to the power of work and effort and toil and achievement, whatever word you want to use, we, we go looking for things, and sometimes it's not material. We look for, we look for other things. We look for approval. Work might be the pathway to get that next sense. Man, look how approved that other person is. And people seem to affirm that person. If I do that, I bet I'll be able to get that affirmation that deep down in my soul I've always wanted from someone. So we think about that sense of approval. For some, it's status. You know, like I, if I could just get there and people would see me as successful, I would finally have what I want, but it, but it keeps eluding them. And every time they get to a certain status, they want the next status. And so they, they might be, maybe work and effort and toil is a way to get to that status. And so they're being driven along by this sort of thing that they haven't even admitted yet is really a pursuit of status. I think we can think about status. I think for some of us, it's the feeling of, uh, of power to achieve more than the next person. Like competition, right? We can be driven by competition. I want to know if I can be the best. And so, and so we're, we can be driven by that, and we're thinking, no, 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 I'm just trying to be the best I can be to serve other people. Maybe, but at the end of the day, you want to be better than the other people around you. And it is an issue of comparison. And so it's more than just material things that we envy. You could fill in the blank with all sorts of other examples. And our author says that in a fallen world, envy is the underlying soil that we plant the seeds of our lives in. And when we do, it flavors all the fruit if we don't take an honest look at ourselves. Let me give you a definition for envy. It's not on the screen. I meant to put it up there, but I forgot. But here's a definition for envy. Envy is the naive drive to have what someone else has without accounting for the cost of getting it. I'll say that again. Envy is the naive drive to have what someone else has without accounting for the cost of getting it. Because that's what happens, isn't it? We see what other people have, but we don't see the cost. The cost is hidden what they've paid to get it and how it fits in their life is hidden from our viewpoint, but we want that thing. And so envy is this, this unhealthy desire. I want that, but, but I, I haven't really thought about what it might cost. I'm just going to start pursuing it. That's how envy works. It undercuts wisdom. It stops us from asking the important questions of why. And, it, and sometimes we can just be, we can go from envy to envy to envy. It's a type of desire that is not morally or virtuously examined. Envy is the subtle desire for what you see someone else around has. The thing that it wants can be, as I said, both material and immaterial. I want the house they have. I want the sort of recognition they get. I can often be seen in the endless pursuit of more. The next gadget, the next raise, the next fit, the next promotion, the next level of financial security, the next relationship, whatever it is, we can be driven by envy. And so he says toil isn't a safe refuge to just assume we're living a life full of wisdom that honors God because often our toil is driven by envy. And so our author doesn't explain it so much as state it and tell us to mark it down that it will put us on the chase to bottle up the wind and leaves us in a place of emptiness even when we think we've caught it. Now that's the whole thing right there, isn't it? I mean, we could just wrap it up and be thankful to be warned by the author but here's where the teacher gets really helpful as he examines this good thing of achievement and toil he said we can some fi- find some joy in this toil which sort of like work it's you know this work achievement pursuit of goals it, it, there's a good there He shows us that work and toil and achievement have some value, but they must be aimed at some more important things. So the the second thing that we see is, we see the value of achievement is in aiding contentment. The value of work, effort, toil, achievement is actually in in aiding a genuine pursuit of contentment. I want to show you what I mean by that. From the text, in order to do this, the author gives us uh, these sort of proverbs all of a sudden. And sometimes when we're reading it, it kind of feels like, how are these two things related? He made the statement about envy and toil, and now he's talking about handfuls of things, right? Well, he's talking about our effort, our work, our toil, our our motivation for achievement. So he gives us these proverbs in the next couple verses uh, that we see here. And he begins to call us to think about where we find ourselves. Verses 5 and 6 really become the focus in our second point as we think about the value of achievement as in aiding contentment. If you look at verse 5, he centers us, uh, us a bit uh, on the important things, lest we have misunderstood him. He's not down on toil and achievement. He is criticizing achievement that is unexamined and driven by envy. So what he does is he creates three categories for us to find ourselves in in verse 5. And I want to point them out. And I want you to just kind of think like in in relationship to my work and effort and toil. Like which one of these categories do I find myself in? So there's three of them. And I'm going to give them names. The fool, the better man, and the overachiever. So he references the fool first. He says the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Okay, this is, this is simple. It's a picture in ancient times of someone who doesn't seek to achieve anything in life. So, so he said over here on one side is the fool. The fool isn't seeking to achieve anything, isn't willing to work. He just folds his hands. The picture of the folded hands is someone who's not putting their hands to anything of any importance or effort. And so he folds his hands and the result is, he says, he eats his own flesh. Now, I was with the Thursday Night life group that's hosted at the Steels House this week, and Brendan was leading uh, that group. And he made the point that if you watch shows like Alone, survival shows, you realize that eventually if you don't get to work, what happens is you don't have food. And when you don't have food, whether you literally eat your flesh, your, your body eats it for you. And, and, you know, we, we aren't very in touch with not having stuff. So it's like we don't think about this, right? But at the end of the day, it's a picture here of someone unwilling to work. And, and therefore, the only thing you can really do then is consume. The only thing you can do is consume. And, he, and so he's, he's saying that's the fool. The fool is simply a consumer. And, and you know, so this is the picture that he, he, he goes to first. He's not down on achievement, some toil is good effort is good particularly providing for yourself here is good that's a worthwhile achievement to pursue what we would call basic maturity, which means you provide for your needs in life. Now, now listen, teenagers, young adults, uh, I, I wanna just say something to you. Your first goal in life should be to mature by learning to generally support yourself. Like just in your process of maturity, you should be seeking to genuinely support yourself. If you're not yet doing so, that's okay. But it's time that you make some sort of plan and work toward it as you age and mature. Work is good. Toil is good. While we ask in this passage just how good they are, we can't fall in the ditch on the other side of the road and act like there is no value. Eventually, the fool will consume his own flesh. That is what happens when someone starves. And basic maturity is this first pursuit of, I'm not just going to fold my hands. And be a consumer. So that's the first category. But then there's the second category he describes here as the better man. The better man in our category of three here has a handful of things. So he's been busy enough in his work, He's set himself to some things that, that, he's, that he has a handful of things in life and a relative, look what it says, a relative sense of quiet. In his soul. Now that should tip you off. I I don't know. Every time I've ever read this verse, I hear this this phrase better is a handful with quietness. And it just sounds great. I mean, do you get the picture? I've got what I need. I don't have to get up. I can just sit here and be quiet, to be at rest. The quietness here isn't just the noise, it's a quietness of heart. It's this idea of contentment. It's meant to picture contentment. This is is the stuff country songs are made of. Right? The simple life. You know, I've got my pickup truck and the jeans I like. And you here on a Friday night. I'm writing this right now. (laughs) It's just a country song. Now listen, I grew up in the country... I mean, I was born and bred in a 1,500 person town in a county with 10,000 people. There's a lot of content people there. They're not chasing after some of the things that we chase after. And, and I, think, I think being exposed to that helps you realize that so much of the envy that drives us the next thing is, is irrelevant to our real joy. And, and, and there's a reality here uh, of this picture of the person with a handful that they're working. They're doing things, they're achieving some things, but that achievement has broader purposes. It's it's set in a life of contentment and satisfaction that that doesn't need the next thing to be able to be happy. Because there's a point in life where we've got what should be enough. And that's it's hard for us to examine, like, when is that enough? And I'm not gonna pretend like that's easy, but I worry that we could be so driven by the next thing that we never stop and ask the question: when do I have enough? And so here we've got this handful with quiet. It's not that you don't have to put work in to get there. It's the reward of good toil to be able to enjoy yourself and be content. We hear all the time in this book. And here's what I think some of you need to ask yourselves today. Is there any point where I will have enough or have achieved enough where I'm satisfied at that level and content? Like when is enough enough? Our hustle culture treats contentment like a disease (laughs) you know think about how much our culture glorifies hustle like like there are things that you you should work hard to achieve in life and you ought to be the kind of person that can hustle when you have to but like hustling isn't the goal of life but we're often, we're often taught that if you are satisfied with where you're at and you're able to enjoy the relationships and, and honor God with your life and walk along in sort of a simplicity of worship and, and family and walking with the Lord and making yourself available to just see the gospel's fruits overflow in your life, that somehow there's something wrong with that. That you need to be hustling for the next thing and achieving the next thing and you should never be satisfied as though satisfaction is the death of all things good. Yet the Lord comes and he says that he satisfies his people with good things. Well, the question then is, when will we be satisfied? And we have to ask this question, when will we have enough? Because that's the better man here, a handful with quiet. He goes on and he shows us the overachieving man. Now listen, I don't, I don't want to speak entirely pejoratively about overachievers, like I've probably aimed a lot of my life at being an overachiever. And, and, and weirdly, like to contextualize this, in a culture that often has a low aim for what we really ought to be after, like overachieving kind of ought to be our norm a little bit, right? Like we're not, we're not wanting to just be nothing. But here we see this sense of overachievement that goes beyond the aim at contentment. That never asks, why are we achieving? Why are we got to have a second hand? Like the second hand gets added. It's like, you've got this handful, but, but now we want two handfuls. And, and we're going and we're grabbing with all those handfuls to get everything that we can. And, and it's just a flurry of activity and stress and no margin and, and, and constant need for excitement that you've got two hands full. And you're just chasing the wind. I mean, if that doesn't haunt you, I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe I've lived 20 years in Northern Virginia feeling like I'm trying to get a second handful at times, watching all of my brothers and sisters out there trying to grab a second handful and, and going, man, there's so much stress and angst and fear and worry about that. We won't have this or that. And, and, and there's just this burden that is over our area, over uh, our community that, that is like going after that second handful, and we can't figure out why we have so many problems striving man is the one where the pursuit of achievement is the end goal and the process is opposite of peace it's full of striving and chasing the wind again this isn't a criticism of working hard to achieve things but a clarion call to ask ourselves if there is a point at which we are ever really going to be content The wisdom of this passage is to ask that question and realize that contentment is a better goal than endless effort and achievement and we should aim our achievement at a better goal of knowing what would really satisfy us. Contentment is learning, listen, contentment is learning to draw the value out of the basic things that you already have rather than assuming you just need more. That's what contentment is. It looks around and goes, you know, if you just were able to sustain what's there right now. Like do you know how to draw the joy out of the present gifts that God has given you? Can you settle your heart to receive them, to engage in them, to be present and not thinking about the next goal? Contentment's learning to draw the value Out of the basic things that you already have rather than assuming you just need more. The counterfeit is excitement and thrills rather than settled satisfaction. So he says here that our achievement needs a better goal than just getting more. It's gotta be aimed at contentment. And then he does uh, the next thing, our third point. As the teacher continues, he begins to point us to another reason to examine our toil and achievement and understand the limits of continual achievement Here's the reason, the value of achievement is in serving our important relationships. It's aimed at contentment, but it's only valuable to the degree that it serves our important relationships. This is what you're gonna see if, you were to, if you're digging into verse seven through 12 and thinking about what he's saying there. He says a lot about relationships, and, and there's a lot of wisdom there, but let's think about what's at the heart of it and why it's here. It's here in a place where we're examining envy, And the endless pursuit of achievement and action and more. And here he says this whole thing about relationships. Well that should tell us that one of the things that suffers when we have an over pursuit of achievement are the relationships in our life. And we see this, we know this deep down I think. But let's look and see it in the text. In verse 7 through 12 we find some of the most well known verses in Ecclesiastes because they're often cited or read where? Weddings, right? Weddings. If you've probably been to a wedding where some portion of verses 7 through 12 have been read. They're good for that, but I want to make it clear that they're more broadly about relationships and not just focused on marriage, and they're here in the context of examining our toil. First, if you look at verse 7, he describes a situation where a person is endlessly working. It sounds a lot like the song, Cats in the Cradle. He describes though, he says, this person has no other, either son or brother. Yet there's no end to his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So so think about what he's saying. He said, this is a person who's leveraged their time, leveraged their energy for achievement to the point that there's no one really in their life relationally. They've so diminished their relational world that they... So that they could leverage it for achievement, but they but no matter how much more they get, it's never enough. Their eyes are never satisfied with the wealth that they have. And so it says here that this is vanity. He says it's an unhappy business. So we have this. Picture of a high-achieving, low-relationship, career-centered person. The effort to achieve has crowded out the cultivation of real connection and relationship. The relationships are being sacrificed for career advancement. Whenever I read uh, the passages as we're getting ready to study that I'm preparing for, I always ask a particular question. I ask the question, and I would encourage you as you're reading the Bible and you come across saying, what is surprising about this text? Like, What is surprising in here? And as you read through this, there's nothing surprising about the emphasis on relationships. There's nothing surprising about undercutting endless achievement. But but I really found the question that is asked after he says this person has no other son or brother yet, just keeps piling up time and energy, endless amounts. He says, he, he asks a question, and I would have expected the question to be, what are you doing all this for? What? Like, what do you want but he, he actually has an entire different assumption about what matters in life. And he asks the question, who are you doing this for? It, it's a more personal question. It's a relational question. It's one that says in, in, in the complex of our relationships, in the network of our relationships, our work is really more about the who than it is about the what. If you think work is about the what, you're misunderstanding that you're probably serving a who through your work. You want that thing, but not because you want that thing, but you want it for someone. The question is, who do you want it for? It might be yourself. Sometimes it is legitimately for other people to serve them, but it reframes the question of our work to get it back in the right relational aim. Most of us need to be asking, who am I doing all of this for? Who am I doing all this for? That's because the underlying assumption is that work and achievement should serve our important relationships, not the other way around. That, that all of the toil really is about building together something that we all enjoy, something that we all benefit from, something that serves other people, not the other way around. In my experience as A pastor in Northern Virginia over the last 20 years, many people have not settled in their mind a fundamental motivation about their aims in life. Often they're asking their relationships to make all the sacrifices in an effort to achieve and in the process end up serving the wrong people. You just, you see it as a pattern after a while. That's not everyone and... I've seen a lot of people in our church wrestle with this question. And I'm glad to see that. I think it's, I think it's one of the only places where you're likely to be asked the question, who is being sacrificed for your advancement? Now we all recognize, and at times, we make sacrifices to advance, and we do that. Sometimes as families, as communities, we have to make decisions for a period of time to achieve certain things, to serve important goals, to take on responsibilities we should, and that, that's a good thing. We do that together, but, but I'm talking about something worse than that. I'm talking about when we never have an end date on those sacrifices, <laughs> and, and we never even ask, are we gonna keep making more and more of them? Are we gonna expand and take the next thing that's gonna require more and more of those sacrifices without asking, who is this for again? I mean, literally, do, doesn't it strike us that we could hustle and hustle and hustle only to serve someone who, when we leave that situation or job or organization, isn't gonna care about us. I mean, one of the most powerful things I've heard in a sermon in the last few, uh, last few months was Jake reminding us that, that at times, you're gonna leave the career field you're in where you think you're so important and everybody values you, and they're gonna forget about you. And, I, and this asks a different question. Like all that work and toil that's going to build something up, who's going to be the one that's benefiting from that? I mean, I love the idea of having loyalty to institutions and working for other people and honoring those who've given us opportunities. That's great. We should do that kind of thing. But how many sacrifices for the immediate relationships around you are you willing to make to make that person wealthy? To help them achieve their next goal. Because so much of our drive... (laughs) can be motivated by that if we're not careful. And so, the passage urges us to examine our motivation and our work for how the work will really benefit those relationships we are most responsible to cultivate. To reinforce it, he makes an interesting point that undermines what I think might be the objection because I've I've heard it, I've seen it, I understand it. I think a lot of our work is about gaining security. You know, if I say, why the next achievement, why the next, many people say, well, I I just want to make sure I can lay the foundations have the things I need for the future. And in many ways, we're working to secure a future from the possible threats that might be out there. And so we might work harder to achieve a certain level. And what he actually says here is that our security is less likely found in those material accumulations and more likely found in the relationships that we build. And when you go through a difficult time, it's good to have some money to solve some problems, but the thing that will get you through it is gonna be the people in your life. It's gonna be the people who show up for you. And sometimes, listen, sometimes you can lose all that money and with good people around you, have everything you need. You know, we talk about this idea of being a family and a community. Like, what would it do to our ability even then to risk for the Lord if we knew that we were a community of people that said, we don't have to store up such a big amount for the future because we're going to do this together. And if you take that risk to do this particular thing you feel God's calling you to do and you're really generous with your life and your resources, when the day comes, when you hit hard times where those resources would have been helpful, we're going to be there for you. What if we had a whole community like that? What would a church like ours look like if we believed that and were able to seek first the kingdom of God in His righteousness, knowing that our security isn't using more time to accumulate more things, but giving ourselves to the people around us, allowing God's love to flow through us and build real connection with one another and find that, that actually that's going to be the thing that's going to secure our future? Some of us as parents need to know that the the quality of our love for our kids is our greatest security for the next 30 years of our life. I can tell you right now, I'm not letting my parents flounder. I mean, they're they're fine, they've done amazing, they've got security, but something happens to my parents. Me and my other three siblings, we got them. They've, They've sacrificed so much for us They've maintained these incredible, wonderful, healthy relationships. If something happens in their life, we're going to be there with everything we have. All of my possessions are on the table to make sure that they're cared for. As Christians, that should be our heart for one another, for our families. And think about what that unlocks. Think about what it does. It means that more of who I am right now is on the table for God to use in the present and not just stored up for a future I don't even know is coming. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't know what a day has in store. How long as the psalm we read today the years of our life is. But there's a power when we've We've invested our heart in the primary relationships and, and making those healthy because two are better than one for their reward because one person can easily be robbed and two people care for one another. It's that simple in the passage that, that a threefold cord of relationships is even harder to break and you could go on and keep adding strands to the cord. And so he says that that... that Achievement is good, but only to the degree that it is nourishing and helping us in our primary connections and relationships to live out God's command that not only should we love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we should love our neighbor as ourself, our closest neighbor in our house, our closest neighbor in our neighborhood, the people in our church. Listen, we have this opportunity to build a relational sense of security that, that is It is far greater than what you can purchase with your 401k. And he says, that relationship set is better for you than everything else. That's where you find joy and satisfaction in much of what you're longing for. And the temptation is to pursue endless achievement. I was speaking with one of our members who's going through cancer treatments recently and I was so encouraged by her faith when she spoke out about what helped her have a sense of peace as she's going through it. In addition to trusting what she believes deeply about God, she bragged on her son and her daughter-in-law and their care for her. Especially the gift of God's provision for a wonderful daughter-in-law who really, really cares for her. I thought that is far, worth far more to her right now than additional money. But woe, he says, to the one who's alone. Woe to the one who is alone. In the context of this, it's the one who sacrificed relationships for the next, next thing. That's what he means when he says the one who is alone is the one who had to have two handfuls and sacrifice relationships for achievement. So let me ask the question, who are your people? Have you discovered the true reward of giving yourself to building healthy relationships above the next achievement? Because ultimately, the fourth thing he shows us is that the joy of achievement fades with time. We're not gonna take long on this. He gives us this parable in the end about a poor but wise youth who takes these words to heart compared with an old king who doesn't. The king is pictured as having this meteoric rise of achievement and in the end, he becomes the leader of a massive following more and more and more. It seems endless. In the end, it will all be forgotten and no one will spend their time rejoicing over that person. The pursuit of this sort of leadership greatness is vanity and a chasing after the wind, he says. So as we close... There are two things that I think God may want to use this for in our church this morning. First is to call us, as I've already said, to examine our striving and prepare us to seek first his kingdom. We have Long had a mission to point people to the kingdom of God, to know Jesus and make him known. But to be honest, our culture sells us on more and more and more of what it says we need and drives us with envy away from what Jesus says the Lord delights to give us. Our call and invitation is to seek first the kingdom of God and know that all these things, the things that are really necessary for our life and for our contentment, not all the things we want will be added to you. It's a call to faith, an invitation for you to believe God and seek first his kingdom over the next achievement that maybe you don't need. A sense of provision and contentment in seeking his kingdom first is the offer from Christ. Second, I think he wants to invite some of you to find your deepest need met in his provision. Not your own work. The upside down nature of what Jesus offers you today is invitation to salvation. Salvation to being saved from your endless toil and achievement in order to receive a future built by him and provided for by him, including eternal life. By faith in Christ's finished work, you can discover his work for you. And his work for you was that he took on flesh to dwell among us. He lived a sinless life. He honored God with his life. He served those around him. And in doing so, he accomplished what was truly righteous in every way under the law. But he was willing as our substitute and sacrifice to go to a cross where where it says in the Bible that that our sins, our failures, our shortcomings were laid on him. Our transgressions were laid on him and he paid the price for them so that we could leave our pursuit of endless toil to try to earn God's favor and just receive the promise that we're forgiven. That, that, that God cares for you to delight in being reconnected to him, reconciled to him so that you can live a life of joy and freedom from many of the things that have driven you through envy. And if today you will turn from a life of building your own kingdoms and building and pursuing your own desires to trusting that promise Jesus has given us on the cross, you will receive from Him the promise of His security from now to the future and He will build in you by the power of the Holy Spirit a new kind of life that isn't just driven by envy but is able to walk in the value and joy of His kingdom where you love Him, you love people, and you live for the future promise that can never be shaken or taken away. And if you've never put your faith in him, we invite you today to that peace, to that joy, to that promise. I want to ask you to pray with me as we get ready to close out our time by having the Lord's Supper. Lord, we pray that you would work through these words and that you would give us hope, give us focus, and understanding, Lord, of how to take these things and apply them to our lives and to receive them by faith as promises that you make good on. And so, Lord, as we sing and we prepare for the, for, to observe the supper that you have laid out, Lord, we want to remember that we're recipients before we're workers. In Jesus' name, amen.